And welcome back to another episode of Kolo. This is your host, Rabbi Hillel Kappenstein, director of the Columbus Community Kolo. And it's a great honor and privilege to welcome all of you back to our next episode featuring Rabbi Stephen Weil. You know, on Kolot, we try to bring many voices onto one podcast. That's why we've had so many different types of guests, whether it's a Rav, a doctor, a sports figure, a therapist, a businessman, you know, many different types of voices. But today, in today's guest, we get to have someone who has many voices, brings so much to the table, so much diversity within just one person. So it's a very exciting uh, episode that we get to bring to you. To sponsor a Colote episode, email me, sponsorcolote at gmail.com. Once again, sponsorcolote at gmail.com. This episode's sponsor is Restart. Restart is a career development platform which offers complimentary access to log in and work with live career advisors who will help find meaningful employment opportunities that match what you are looking for. To learn more, visit www.joinrestart.com. Com. Once again, www.joinrestart.com and learn about your employment opportunities today. And without any further ado, allow me to tell you about our guest. Rabbi Stephen Weil was appointed Chief Executive Officer of the Friends of the Israel Defense Forces in 2020. He began his career as a pulpit rabbi, first serving at the Young Israel of Oak Park in Detroit, Michigan, and then at Congregation Beth Jacob in Beverly Hills, California. In 2009, he assumed the position of Senior Managing Director of the Orthodox Union, leading their institutional advancement and community engagement efforts. As an internationally recognized scholar and lecturer, Rabbi Weil has lectured in over 50 communities throughout North America and over 15 countries across Europe, the Middle East, and South Africa. Rabbi Stephen Weil, thank you so much for joining Kolot. It's an honor to be here. Rabbi Kappenstein, thank you for the gracious invitation. So... Like I mentioned in my uh, in my opening, there's so much that you bring to the table, so many uh, different parts of Rabbi Stephen Weil that we get to talk about tonight. So maybe we'll start off a little bit. Can you tell us about, I know you have an interesting background, your upbringing. Can you share with us a little bit about where you're from and your upbringing? Sure. We're actually German Jews. In other words, the area of southwestern Germany, if you look at most of who the great Gedolim were, Rishonim, Akronim, meaning the great scholars of the high middle, high mid, uh, sorry, medieval ages, middle ages. If you look at during the period from the 16th through the, the 21st century, most of the great German scholars were not per se in Berlin, not per se in northeastern Germany. They were either along the Rhineland or along the Main River, you know, either the Rhinus River or the Main River. And we're from that area. It's, it's known as Unterfranken, Lower Franconia. You know, Americans, we all call it Bavaria, but that would be like saying to someone from Pennsylvania, oh, you're, you're from New York, you know, they'd be offended. So Lower Franconia or Unterfranken is actually distinct from Bavaria, probably 35 kilometers from Würzburg. And in these communities, there were always a 
significant minority. When I say significant minority, I mean anywhere between five and 18, 20% of the population of these small towns. We go back almost 300 years in the same community and we were in the cattle business. Um, in fact, the, the, the Germans built a railway, which was not for people. It was for cattle for, from our farm to Würzburg because the market was in Würzburg. And uh, look, unfortunately, like has happened in most of Jewish history, my great uncles, my grandfather, these were all people who had had these incredible uh, careers in World War I defending Germany, you know, having medals of honor, getting the, the Iron Cross, all kinds of medals of honor. And in the end, you know, my, my grandfather's brothers and brothers-in-law, some of them were sent in March of 42 to Poland and ultimately were gassed to death with carbon monoxide in Belgians. Belgians, which was the place that annihilated Galician Jewry, the first Jews killed there where there were some German Jews from our area as well as uh, some Austrian Jews. And unfortunately, it was an end to what was a glorious history. So that's where our family's from. I grew up about 50 miles from Buffalo. So I have a similar Midwest accent to many of your listeners, you know, who are listening from throughout the state of Ohio. You know, when they came to America, they came, everything had been taken away. They had to work for a few years. Once they were able to generate enough to put a down payment on a farm, they heard there were cattle in Wisconsin. They just didn't know if there were any Jews there. And they also heard that it was cattle country in upstate New York. And they'd heard there was a Jewish community in Buffalo. So they went and they settled and they bought the initial farm and then developed it into a series of farms about 45, 50 miles outside of Buffalo. And that's where I grew up. Wow. So what was it like growing up on a farm? I mean, I, we enjoyed it. We were the only Jews within about probably 35, 40 mile radius. Um, you know, mainly our neighbors were mainly Lutheran, Methodist, you know, um, a few Baptists, very few Catholics, very few blacks. And we were the only Jews. And you compare that to today where everyone's growing up um, with so much technology and there's like, it doesn't seem like there could be anything more opposite than the fast paced technology generation that we're living in to what you had. Um, is it, is it, I mean, can you, can you believe that in one lifetime you could have such two um, opposing, you know, phenomenons? Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting point you're making. Well, can, can you tell us a little bit? So from there, you went to Yeshiva, or how, how did that uh, – I know you eventually went to Yeshiva University, but tell us a little bit about that journey. So the last two years of high school, I was able to go to Yeshiva. The, Rabbi Riskin at the time had a Sifta. Today, it's Tells Yeshiva, that tells alumni in Riverdale. Uh, it was the former estate, I believe, of Madame Shane Heishek, those who – Remember the, the wedding scene of Talia Shire from the, uh, the first Godfather? It's across the street from where that wedding was filmed. And um, it was an interesting place because they would take a kid like me who really had almost no background and they would take a shot. And they, you know, in the Rebellion sat with me and worked with me and got me up to snuff. So I went two years to, to that high school, to Yeshiva High School. And then I went to Yeshiva University. Had the blessing of learning by Ravaran Khan for seven years. It was in the Kolo for five years, simultaneously while getting an MBA at NYU, an MBA in securities finance. And can you tell us a little bit about some of the people that may have influenced you, the individuals and who they were and what you learned from them? 
So I think it's like with anyone else. You know, if you're blessed to come from a good family, grandparents, parents, you know, are incredible role models, people of substance. You know, the, the fact that they led a Jewish life in a place where there were no Jews, you know, that, that tells you something. Um, you know, and I, like I said, Rav Khan, Rav Aaron Khan, I had the chance to learn after, after Smichan Kolal, when I was teaching with Rabbi Sal Zucker, you know, in terms of teaching methodology. I would say this, I never had the blessing of, of learning under Rabbi Salavechik, but probably have listened to and written up many of them, maybe 600 different shiurim that he gave over the years. I've had the blessing of being involved in the, in the publication of maybe, you know, 13, 14 volumes of his Torah. On Chumash, Kinos, on, you know, coming out with something on the Siddur this summer, on Tfila, you know, on the Machser, different Masechtas, on the Rambam. So, his influence, although I can, I, I would lie to you if I was saying that I was a Talmud, but listening to those shiurim and learning from the way that he communicated, the way he analyzed, the way, the kind of questions that he would ask, what are the right questions to be asked? That, that was an incredible, incredible um, influence as well. Amazing. So I know you had a incredible um, tenure at the OU, but before getting to the OU, what was your first job? So out of Smicha, it was, we, we were youth directors. I mean, we were called assistant rabbi, but we were, it was really glorified youth directors in Livingston, New Jersey. And at the same time, I was a 12th grade Rebbe at the Frisch School. You know, Frisch is a yeshiva high school in Bergen County. Great school. Till this day, it's an outstanding, really outstanding educational place. And how did he get to the OU? Was recruited. When I was the rabbi in Beverly Hills. So one second. So you were the rabbi at Beverly Hills before getting to the OU. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So is it is is that where you connected with a friend of ours, a previous guest on Kola, Rev. Aaron Cutler? Yeah, we met. I met Rev. Aaron Cutler through the. I think the one who introduced us was the chairman of the board of Lakewood, Howard Friedman. Sure. Howie is, is a good friend who lives in Baltimore. And we actually brought out Rav Aaron Cutler. We brought him out to be a scholar in residence. We do a board retreat every year when I was the rabbi. Mm-hmm. And we had him one, one year doing our board retreat. And tell us a little bit about that relationship, because I know something came out of that. I know um, he got a little involved with what you're doing there. And tell us a little bit about what their impact was. So this was, this was even before Rav Aaron Cutler, uh, Aaron Cutler came out. We had a, an outstanding Talmud Chacham in, in Los Angeles, Rabbi Baruch Yehuda Graydon. He was the Mashkiach of the Lakewood Kola. And Rabbi Fassman, from Midwest fame, you know, his father is Rabbi Oscar Fassman, who was the head of Skokie Yeshiva. He was a rabbi in Lincolnwood. So Rabbi Fassman was the Rosh Kola. He learned in Panovich. And he encouraged Rabbi Graydon to open up a Kola on, quote-unquote, our side of town. Their side of town is... Hancock Park, that area. Mm-hmm. Our side of town is Beverly Hills, Pico Robertson, Beverly Wood. And Rabbi Graydon, you know, went to Lakewood. He got a group, a fine group of guys. And, you know, now we're looking at it close to 18, 19 years later. That colo is doing exceedingly well, you know, in terms of the length and breadth of who they educate, who they engage. And many of the uh, graduates of that colo program you know, play a major role in the Jewish community in Los Angeles till this day. 
I'm sure that's been the case in Columbus. That was a, that was a case in Detroit. That was a case in Toronto. You know, when you attract the right people to the Colel, so many of them move on and many of them stay and play, whether it's in the business community or whether it's in the, the, the Jewish community, play a major role. Absolutely. That's what we do. Uh, so coming from having a YU background, was being introduced to Lakewood BMG, was that something that like, you know, foreign to you? What was that like? No, you know, in other words, a lot of people like to put people in a box. But the reality is, I think, you know, for thinking Jews, the world of the Ketsos and the Nasivas, the world of Rukhaim Soloveitchik, you know, that's the common denominator that binds us all. The world of Abaye and Rava, Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Tarfon, that's the common denominator. And the reality was these were not young kids. The, the, the people that were coming out were people in their mid to late 20s who were very capable, talented, capable people. And the, the Rosh Chabura, his name was Rabbi Damashevsky, his father was a world-class uh, professor of chemistry, was actually nominated a couple times for the Nobel Prize in Chemistry. He was the Rosh Chabura, Rabbi Damashevsky, and Rabbi Graydon was really the tour de force. You know, because of his relationship in the community over 30 years, it was a natural for him to open this up and, and develop it and meet it. Amazing. So from there, you got you went to the OU. Tell us a little bit. I mean, that's a big job you had at the OU. Tell us a little bit about some of the leadership lessons that you learned in that capacity. See, I would say the difference between being in an organization and being, let's say, a communal rabbi. As a communal rabbi, your responsibility is really to be there on the front line, to be there for your community, to be there for the flock. When you're working in a more of a national organization, you're supporting the people on the front line. So the best way of describing the OU, what, when General Electric was a great company, you know, in the days of Jack Welch, what did they do? They basically bought companies that had a very good management team and they supported those management teams. To use the analogy, we had people that were very talented in different areas of impacting the Jewish world. We did their fundraising. We did their accounting, their HR, their legal. You know, we would bring people to their board. It was almost like a general electric, a Jewish general electric, in the sense that we had nine major non-for-profits. But our job was to support those on the front line, enable those on the front line. That's the way... Um, I would say the difference was, are you on the front line? Or are you supporting those and enabling those on the front line? And what was that transition like? I mean, you're talking about going from a position where like, you could be dealing with, you know, someone's bar mitzvah and someone's shalom bias issues. And then you lose that like personal touch. It's almost like you're dealing with like commercial Judaism. What was that like for you? Yeah, the reality is you, you could lose touch. That's, that's a, you have to work with people. If you work with people who are on the front line and you hear their issues and you're with them during their issues, then you don't lose touch. I mean, I'll give you an example. Every other weekend, I was in a different community. Being in a different community means you're in the day school on Friday. You know, you're with donors Thursday night. You're with donors Saturday night, Sunday. You're doing a, a scholar in residence. You're eating at people's homes on Shabbos. So in that sense, you're not losing touch. 
you know, in, in that, that community could be a huge community, could be a small community, could be a, a this community or that community. And by doing that, you know, throughout the duration of the year, you don't lose touch. But it would be easy to fall into that, that trap. And when you what were you when you were doing that, did you like kind of miss those rabbis days or you know, what was it like going from such a you know, one type of career it's basically switching midway? So I would say this. The kind of things that I do, what I'm learning right now, the kind of tours that I do, you know, this summer we're taking a group along to the, Jew, the, the Jewish history of the Rhine River from, you know, from Amsterdam through Basel, the Jewish history of the Danube River we're going from Germany through, through Hungary. You know, to be able to do something like that, you know, when you're a rabbi, there's no such thing as a day off because, you know, people don't choose when they're going to die. They don't die around your, they don't get sick or have, God forbid, a heart attack. You don't have a situation where an affair breaks out, you know, when it's, when it's not your vacation. When crisis hit, you've got to be there. It doesn't, you know, you just have to be there. That's the nature of the beast. You know, we had a summer colo for years before the Lakewood colo came into our shul. We had a, an incredible YU summer cola where we'd have Smitha students. We'd have over 110 people every night in the base medrash. I never went away in the summer. That was one of our busiest times. So you can't do the kind of things that I can do. And, I, and by the way, I'm not here to say that one lifestyle is better or worse. God forbid. I'm, I'm not here to make a value judgment. But the kind of things, whether it's what I want to learn, what I want to read, the places that I'd like to go, you can't do, and I work a very, I work, trust me, I work seven days a week and I work very long hours. After this, we, we're filming this from 8.30 to 10. I've got a meeting right away from 10 to 11.30. You know, I, I work very long hours. But the reality is when you're a rabbi, you're an emergency room doctor and you have to be. To be a good rabbi, you've got to be there when they need you. Most jobs, you're usually not an emergency room doctor and it gives you the ability to do certain things in your personal life, you know, whether it's in this case, my intellectual personal life, my spiritual personal life, that you just can't do as a rabbi. And, and again, I'm not here to say one is better than the other because the, the, the answer is it depends who you are. It depends the situation. Absolutely. That's no, I love that. That's great. And what would you say was your biggest challenge while working at the OU? As a, on an organizational level, what was your biggest challenge? I would say this, the disappearing American Jew. You know, the largest amount of energy, of financial resources, of any of the nine divisions was invested into what we call NCSY, but particularly the JSU, the Jewish Student Union, which was targeting unaffiliated Jews. Most Jews under the age of 40 are unaffiliated. That's just the reality, okay? And the reality is that today for someone, um, for someone to get, how do I say this? To marry a Jew. I'm not talking about people living in the Orthodox community. I'm talking about the average American Jew. They're going against the grain. It's just not what their peers are doing, okay? You know, they used to say in Yiddish, they don't know an olive from a base, you know, when they mock someone who wasn't educated. Today, the average American Jew can't identify an olive, can't identify a base. An olive and a bet, they have no clue. They, can, they haven't had a bar bat mitzvah. They don't know how to read. 
you know, fill in the blank, Avram, Yitzhak, and Sarah, Rivka, Rachel, and they can't do it. For sure, they, they have no understanding of our theology. They have no understanding of the, of the sophistication of the methodology of Torah Shabbat. They just don't know. And we're losing more people in, in Western civilization. I say America, Canada, Western Europe. We're losing more, with the exception of France, but we're losing more people in Western civilization than we lost to the enemies, to Hitler, to Polish Catholics, the Lithuanians, the Ukrainians, the Latvians. We're losing many, many more today. And um, unfortunately, it's the best of times, it's the worst of times. You've got an Orthodox community with all of our warts and pimples. We have plenty of warts and pimples. But it's doing exceedingly well. Look at the Jewish education. Look at the camping experiences. Look at the, the gap years in Israel. Look at the opportunities. You know, look at the ability to have an impact in various academic, professional, legal, career areas, industries. It's just an incredible opportunity. And the Orthodox are thriving. They're having many children both in the Hasidic, the yeshivish, and the modern world. They're, they're thriving. With all the problems, they're thriving. It's not so with the majority of American Jews. We're losing our people. It may not look as bad in Columbus, Ohio, but go to Tucson, Arizona. Go to San Diego. You know, Go to Houston. Look at what's happening to our people. And that is a real tragedy. And we were trying to stem that specifically targeting the young adolescents, specifically giving them an opportunity, exposing them to ideas, to opportunities, to, to how beautiful it is, how wonderful, how fascinating Judaism is. And we've done an incredible job, but whatever we've done is not stemming the tide. I understand we say, call them Mekayim Nefeshachas. Anyone who can engage one person, bring one person back to the depth, the passion, the, the excitement, the dynamism of Judaism. That's a universe, that one person. That, that one person is a universe. So we have hundreds and hundreds of universes. But if you look at it on a macro level, we wish we tried and we invested a fortune of money. But it's very difficult. You're fighting an uphill battle. And, and again, I don't mean to be negative. I don't mean to be depressing. Statistically, you're fighting a terrible, terribly uphill battle. And as proud as I am of what we did, as proud as I am of what we did, I would also say that, you know, it's hard to stem the tide. And why is it worse, would you say, in Western civilization than other parts of the world? When you give someone every opportunity to steep themselves in Western values. And I'm not here to champion Western values because many of the modern Western values, you know, we, we, we find, um, put it mildly, lacking. But when they can become steeped in those values and they get no Jewish education, there's no Jewish substance, you know, you've got a Western world that accepts them, that adopts them, that embraces them. As bad as anti-Semitism is today, it's nothing compared to historical norms. So they're being embraced. They become steeped in Western values. And on the other hand, they have the most, you know, infantile notion of what Judaism is. 
And, and can I press you a little bit further? Like what's an example of a Western value that they could embrace and that holds them back specifically from connecting to Judaism? We have a value system in this country that you don't discriminate. We don't look at your skin color. We don't look at your religion. We don't look at you historically where you're from. We also have this concept of the American dream, that every American should have a chance to be educated, to make it, that if they're willing to work hard, again, this may not be the case today, but until a few years ago, this was the case. If you're willing to work hard, you're willing to become educated, we'll give you every opportunity to live the American dream, to shape the destiny of humanity, okay? That's such a beautiful, embracing thing. And you have a situation where parents want their child marrying a Jewish man. Jewish men don't have the same rate. Whether it's true or not, the perception is substance abuse is a small, it's a less of a rate that is not engaging in spousal abuse. And again, I'm not here to say there aren't Jews who suffer from substance abuse. There are Jews who engage in spousal abuse. They're, 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 you know, we all know there are bad apples everywhere. But the perception is that Jews are loyal, Jews are good family people, Jews want their children to be better than themselves, Jews will raise good children, they'll have good grandchildren. So here you've got a world that embraces us, okay? Now look at our, look at our intermarriage rate in the Ukraine, you know, before the downfall of Tsarist Russia. You had a high degree of alcoholism, you had a high degree of illiteracy, you had a high degree of spousal abuse, you had people who had lived in a primitive way. They didn't have sanitary conditions. That's not the case in America. In the case, you know, Shuvi Shuvi Ashulamis, right? Shuvi Shuvi Benechasabach, to quote uh, the Song of Songs, Shir Shirin. We're beloved, we're embraced, we're, we're made equal. And at the same time, we're not given a particularly sophisticated Jewish education. So what's going what's to hold the Jew back? Again, I don't, I don't mean to be negative. I'm saying, but, but realistically, what's going to keep the Jew back? Right. You know, you get a Jewish kid that gets a serious Jewish education and then gets serious extracurriculars, whether it's summer camps, whether it's great youth movements, and then gets those years in Israel before going to the campus and has a community that, that, that is dynamic and has a community that embraces and loves them. That's a very different story. The average, the average American Jew is given nothing of that, nothing of the like. It's just a very, again, and I, I don't mean this in a denigrating way, but the average American Jew has an infantile notion of what Judaism is. As, as we uh, record this, we're going to be entering the month of Tammuz, which is going to start the beginning of, you know, eventually going to get to the three weeks and, and which has the climax of Tisha B'Av. And I know that, you're someone who's very passionate and does a lot of, uh, has a lot of talks about the three weeks, Tishabov, Kinos. And that's generally speaking a very hard time, not because we can't shave, not because we can't get haircuts, and not because we can't swim, and not because um, we don't eat meat, and then one day we don't eat at all. It's a hard day to relate. It's a very hard day. It's a very hard time period for us to relate. So I want to know if you could, you know, as we're going to be publishing this right in that season, um, if you could give some suggestions why, h- how we could relate and how we could you know, be something really meaningful and really push us to connect back to uh, the Chorban. Yes, that's a, that's a topic that is very, very broad and very significant. 
So I'll, I'll do something which I apologize is cheap because I have to keep it to a few minutes. We have we have until ten o'clock. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, there is two times a year where the halacha is not to commemorate something historically, but the whole halachic structure is to relive and re-experience. Of course, Seder night. Once we hit, you know, the crescendo of of the second cup of the Magid, we're no longer telling a story after we finish Arami Ovidavi. We're now, you know, in each and every generation, we're experiencing our own liberation and emancipation. That's a radically different experience than to, than than looking back thousands of years. Well, the same is true on Tishabov. You start out, you know, from the seventeenth of Tammuz when all Jews across the world, at least the Ashkenazic Minhagimar, were all in the, the mourning period of Yud Beis Chodesh, of the 12 months. Then comes Rosh Chodesh. Ah, we, we ratcheted up. We're all in a state of, of uh, Shloshi. Once you get to Tisha B'av, I mean, what, what are the kinos? They really are the eulogies. We're reliving the tragedies. Misha Mason with the fun of the Gemara says, the dead is lying in front of us. Okay. We're reliving the, the People's Crusade going north along the Rhine River in 1096. We're reliving what the uh, Ukrainian Cossacks did in 1648 and 49. It actually lasted through 53. We're reliving what, what Ferdinand and Isabella did. We're reliving what, what the Ukrainians and the Latvians and the SS did in 41. We're reliving the annihilation of Polish Jewry in 42 and 43. Okay. It's not that we're doing a history lesson. We're actually re-experiencing and reliving the tragedy. And, you know, there's that famous um, story. I, you know, I, I don't know where that came from, whether it happened in Belarus and white Russia, or whether it actually happened in part of Central Europe. But as Napoleon was trying to conquer the continent, you know, it was a Tishabov. And, you know, he goes through a town. It was a fairly largely populated town. And none of these Jews are at work. You know, um, none of these Jews are at work. And what happens? They're sitting there on the floor, you know, mourning, saying the kinos. And he asks, you know, he asks one of his men, what is this? It's the middle of the week. What's going on? They told the story, you know, what the Jews are doing. So supposedly Napoleon said, look, a people that has not forgotten its loss of Jerusalem, you know, if, if it's a reality and it's that, that tangible and that poignant, such a people ultimately will return to Jerusalem. Now, if that's a true story, or if it's a legend, either way, he got the point. And that's who we are. That's who we are. Um, I would say this. In the, I'm thinking it's either the 22nd or the 25th Kina. The survivors of the annihilation of the German Rhineland in 1096, they did a number of things. One of the things they wanted to do was to establish a fast day for the destruction of the Bali Amasola, the great scholars of mines and worms, the communities along the Rhine River, the communities like Regensburg that were not on the Rhine River that were annihilated. And um, they said, no, v'chi'ein l'hosif mo'ed shever v'tavera. You can't add another moed, another designated time. Why not? What would have been wrong of setting up a fast day the week before Shavuos? 
So what they were saying, and this is Rabbi Soloveitchik developed this, his uncle, the Briskarov, said the same thing. All destruction, all, let me say this, all Jewish tragedy stems from the Chorban Beis HaMikdash. What, what does that mean? When God, and, and I'm using human terms, when he was Masalic, meaning that intense providential relationship, when God removed that intense providential relationship that allowed Titus and that allowed Titus and the Roman legions to destroy the Beis HaMikdash, to destroy the temple, to violate the, the Holy of Holies. So then it just became a, a real estate. We don't mourn over the destruction of real estate. We don't. We mourn over the loss of that intense providential relationship. And once we don't have that, then anything is possible. All of the tragedies of Jewish history stem from the afternoon of the ninth of Av in the year 70 of the Common Era. That's Sivu Kashrina. And that's what we're mourning. And that's what we're yearning for. And it's very interesting. When you go through the kinos, you know, it's not just eulogies. Many of the kinos are incredibly introspective and reflective, starting with the Kalir working. You know, no different, you know, look, the Kalir was basing himself on Jeremiah the prophet, on Yermiyahu and other. But going through the, the kinos of the Middle Ages, going through the kinos of modern times, there's a sense of introspection and reflection. God gave us these incredible institutions that would enable our national perfection. And we corrupted those. We, we bastardized and we perverted those institutions. And ultimately, we lost those institutions because the way we corrupted them was a corruption of Judaism and a corruption of our relationship with God. And it's that loss, that destruction, that loss of intense, intense, how do I say this? providential, intimate relationship with God that ultimately enabled the Jewish people to succeed, to impact the world from the center of the world, which is what Israel is. It's the linchpin between the three great continents. When all of that was taken away, that is what leads to the tragedies throughout Jewish history. And that's why the great medieval scholars said, we're going to observe the destruction of the German Rhineland, not when it happened in May and June. We're gonna, we're gonna, all, all of that. I apologize. Stems from the destruction of the Basemic dish. You know, one of the, um, the most personal of kinos for many is the last one, and depending on which nusach you read, the one about the Holocaust. You know, um, my generation. Um, is very lucky to have met, uh, hopefully even had a relationship with survivors. But as the um, as as we get older and our children are born, it's 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 slipping from us that relationship. Um, what are some of the things that you wanna you would want, I guess, our generation to pass on as we transition? Unfortunately, um, from getting to know survivors to now we're only interacting with children of survivors. What are some of the things that you want people to uh, to teach, to remember, and learn from the Chorban of Europe? It's interesting. You know, the, the whole me educational methodology at Yad Vashem, they tell the story through the lives of individuals. You know, you know who did that? There's a famous historian, Sir Martin Gilbert. The Churchill family was a Jew. He was, really, was a thoughtful Jew. The Churchill family chose him to be the official biographer of Winston Churchill. But later in life, he really told the story of the Holocaust, told the story of Soviet Jewry, told the story of Israel. 
in the way he taught history was through he intertwined multiple multiple stories of individuals regarding a certain event and that that's the way Yad Vashem does whether it's touring so guiding someone through Auschwitz whether it's at the museum they tell the story you know very similar to what Elaz, Rabbi Elazar Kalir did when he told the story of Yoshiahu Melech or what the great medieval um, Payatanim did when they told the story of the son and daughter of Rabbi Shmuel Kohen Gadol. It's really the story of the individuals. And if we have the ability to tell their story, I mean, whether it's the, the, the individuals who were in the Sonder Command, whether it was the individuals in Latvia, the individuals in Hungary, when things, when, when the world was being round up in, in the spring of 44, if we can personalize their story to the next generation, then the story lives on. Beautiful. We go from the, um, the Horban of Europe to, um, in, in history, to the establishment, eventually, eventually to the establishment of the state of Israel. And we know um, that, some, that, that the Eretz Yisrael is something that is so near and dear to, to all of us. And I understand your current position is CEO of the Friends of the Israeli Defense Force. So we could probably do a whole episode just on that. But can you tell us a little bit about your position, your, um, you know, what your what your job is, and what you get to oversee? You have a situation in Israel no different than any other country, where you have haves and have-nots. You have people who have wonderful parents, who have an incredible education, you know, who are going to have great opportunities. And what's incredibly beautiful about the general staff and about the whole infrastructure of the idea. You know, we see them from a distance as the ones who are responsible for preventing the Ayatollahs, the Imams, the Shia Caliphate, who's trying to create this hegemonic rule from the Persian Gulf to the Mediterranean, who's got six proxies that have spun a web around Israel and could strike, you know, literally rockets from six different places pummeling Israel. And they've got to try to protect Israel. It's not just Israel. It's all of Western civilization because Israel is a canary in the coal mine. Look. Six million Jews were killed by Hitler, but 58 million people lost their lives in World War II. We're first, we're never the last. And that's not who they are. That is who they are. But there's a whole other side to them. They take young men and young women who didn't have the education that we'd all like to have, who didn't have homes that we'd all like to have, who weren't provided the, the blessings that you and I were provided and the reality is, in any other society, they would be have-nots, or they'd be a, a, a leech on society, depending on some the case of some of the worst. What they do is they provide a vehicle, they provide an opportunity and a context for everyone to have a second chance, to live the Jewish dream, the Israeli dream. And that's where we fund. You know, look, if, if Israel was like every other country that spent 2% of the GDP on military, you wouldn't need an FIDF. Israel's spending 5.2% just on the IDF. You add in the, the Shabak, you add the Mossad, you add the Mishmar Gvul, which takes care of the security needs, the intelligence needs. You're looking at 10, over 10% of the GDP. You understand that is a miracle, that Israel survives is a miracle on the proportion of Hanukkah and Purim. There's no way anyone can survive that kind of a situation. And the fact that God allows Israel to survive economically is, is a profound miracle every month that it happens. 
just to give you a context, when President Trump said to Angela Merkel and when he said to the French and the Italians, it's not fair that the American taxpayer is subsidizing rich first world nations. You've got to pay your fair share towards NATO. What did he mean? What did President Trump, when he said your fair share, he meant 2%. Israel, the reason we exist is because they don't have the funds for GI bills. They don't have the funds for education. They don't have the funds for welfare. They don't have all of these funds. They're spending them on F-35s and they're spending them on submarines. They're spending it on, on all kinds of satellites and in, in whether it's the sea, the air, whether it's cyber, whether it's intelligence, whether it is artillery, whether it is infantry, that's where they're spending their money. And what happens? It's not just us. We, are, we provide probably 60, 62% of it, but 25% of it comes from Israelis, Israeli individuals and companies. And then the other 15% probably comes from small groups across the globe. What are we doing? We're funding the education, the welfare, and the opportunity for these young men and women. If they give their, put themselves in harm's way and they give the best years of their life and they sacrifice their innocence, their youth, we give them the skills, the education, so that they can ultimately help Israel in the next 60 years. As computer programmers, engineers, as Jews who understand what Judaism and Jewish history and Zionism is, as, as people who are, have the ability to, to, to support a family, you know, who have the skill set, etc. Again, it's, it's a lot more than that because there's probably 12 or 14 crucial educational things. You know, we're, we're funding over 4,000, not quite, not quite 4,000 scholarships a year, paying for the, the education as well as the expenses for university. For poor kids that came out of combat units, they couldn't have moonlighted while they were in the army. They were up on the northern border, the southern border. They were in Judea and Samaria. It's true of those kids who don't have a high school education. We get them a diploma so they can get a job. You can't get a job without a high school diploma. It's true of kids from what they call the periphery, you know, the development towns, giving them the skills to get into top units, cyber units, intelligence units. This is all being driven by the general staff, by those who run the Ministry of Defense and those who run the Army, because they care about these kids. They really do. We've got, it's not just the 3,300 lone soldiers that we fund from, from 68 countries. There's 3,400 Israeli lone soldiers. You know, this kid, you know, was an object of rape from a stepfather. This one was an object of abuse from a father. This one is from a home where they don't let him come home. It's just, you know, you got to provide for these kids because they're our future. It's not just my child and your child who are the future of the Jewish people. All these kids are our future and, and they care about them. They, they, they have such, you know, the Yiddish values are incredible in the ethics of that army. There's no army like that. You, you know, the last hundred years, I say that, I should say that differently. In America, we haven't fought a, an army, uh, what we call a standard war. We've been fighting asymmetric wars since World War II. In Israel, they've been fighting asymmetric wars since the Yom Kippur War, where the enemy is dressed in civilian clothing. They work out of UN schools and Red Crescent hospitals and ambulances. They're dressed like you and I, like civilians. So you look at, I'm talking about very ethical armies like, like Britain and the United States. If you leave Israel out for a second, 
the most ethical battle was Fallujah. Fallujah is Pumpadisa, where our whole Masoda comes from. Abaye and Rava, Rav Yehuda, Rabba and Rav Yosef. So in, when the British conquered Fallujah in Persian Gulf II, 23 innocents, 23 civilians were killed for every combatant. We as Americans, 30 innocents were killed for every combatant in Iraq and Afghanistan, which leads to the incredibly, incredibly high percentage of suicide attempts and successful suicides by American GIs. Israel, in 2012, the war in Gaza, two to one. 2014, the 70-day war in, in Gaza, Suk Eitan, one to one. In 2021, the 11 days in May, of 2021, Shomer HaChemot, Guardians of the Wall, 0.7 to 1. 0.7 kill, civilians died. And, and I'm using inflated records. I, I'm using the numbers of Chabas groups. 0.7 Gazans were killed for every one combatant. Israel's off the chart. That's the ethics of Israel. That's the, that's the, the code of ethics that, that exists in every branch of that army. Because they want, they want these kids to come home, not suffering from PTSD, not suffering from, from, from what, from knowing all the innocents that were killed. And by the way, there are many, and I've been with generals in, in West Point. I went with General Bensi Gruber and the graduating cadets of West Point were, were challenging him and challenging the Israeli code of ethics that they bend over too far backwards that they need to, to, to kill in order to, to stop the terrorists and, and to, to eliminate the terrorists. So if that means that the people who, sur who surround the terrorists have to die, so be it. Israel won't do that. They won't do that. And, and these cadets were furious that Israel wouldn't do that. But what I'm trying to describe to you is the ethics in the Jewish army, the idea, the, the values that cares for every young woman, every young man, and wants to see them succeed, which is what they task us with. That's how you build a nation. And what's also fascinating is Israel is a miracle. You've got Jews from 80 some countries. You've got Christians, you've got Muslims, you've got Druze, you've got Circassians. And they all live in the same bunk. The Orthodox and the, and the atheist, you know, the, the Druze and the Jew, they're all in the same bunks. And you know what? They all come out friends. They all come out brothers for life. They all care about each other. No, the Orthodox is not going to become a Druze, and the Druze is not going to become a Jew, and the Christian is not going to become a Muslim, and the Sephardi is not going to become an Ashkenazi, and the Ethiopian is not going to become a Persian, and the Persian is not going to become a Ukrainian. It's not going to happen. They remain who they are and what they are. They'll, they'll argue about politics, and they'll argue about you know who should be the prime minister, and they'll argue about the judicial reform and everything else. But they, that's the ultimate fraternity. They'll do. They'll sacrifice their own life for these other for their peers. It's an incredible, incredible platform that unifies and builds a nation, that brings a nation together. And, and I, you know, I apologize. I've gone way too long on this, but but the reason we exist is basically to to fund the education, the welfare, and there are a lot of poor in Israel. COVID did a terrible job. You know, in America, we printed trillions of dollars, which is why we have the terrible inflation we have today. In Israel, which is true of almost every country, they couldn't afford that. So deep poverty, when today it's up to 10,000, it used to be 8,000 pre-COVID. The Tchuma for the gray zone, which is what you and I would call poverty, they don't call it poverty, they call it the gray zone. 
That used, we used to fund 22,000 soldiers. Today, it's 40,000 in the gray zone. The poor really got hurt. COVID did a job on the poor in Israel, big time. And uh, that's part of our job. While these kids are risking their lives, we've got to make sure that the parents can pay the rent and can pay the utilities. We've got to make sure they have food on the table. And it's, you know, it's not like America where there's such a robust food stamp and such a robust welfare. It's not like that in most countries. So that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're doing. We're doing much more, but those are a few of the things we're doing. I love that passion. I really do. Um, <laughs> I can't help but ask, you know, you mentioned earlier that even though you came from a YU background, starting a liquid cola doesn't matter. Kitsos is a Kitsos, and Asivas is an Asivas. A Bayan Rava, you know, as a Bayan Rava, we learn it all. We also share Etzisrael together as our sacred homeland, yet it becomes such a hot topic. And like the whole issue about the army or draft or not sometimes becomes so political. What would you like to say so we could stop making it political? It's tough. You know, in Israel, you know, that issue of whether you're going to do some form of national service, be it the army or some form of national service, it's really a tough issue. Israelis are fascinated by the fact our Haredi community, look, let, let's be honest, 99% of all Hasidic or Yeshivish Jews are Zionists. That doesn't mean that they, they fly to Kachol Balaban. They don't necessarily fly the flag. And it doesn't mean that they're going to get up on your Matzmut and say the Hallel. But what do you think they do after say Moda'ani in the morning? They, they turn on their phone. They want to know what's happening in Israel. Absolutely. They, 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 you know, it, it blows away the, the Israelis to realize just how passionate about Israel and how Zionistic the Haredi community is in America. But we have the luxury in America of all being Zionists because the reality is this whole issue of yes, army, no army, yes, you know, national service, no national service. And this whole notion, you know, that there's an expectation of funding from the government. It's a very painful issue. And and I'm not here to take sides on it. I'm just saying it's an incredibly divisive issue. You know, we all know the Chazal, we all know the Rambam. When you don't take money for being Jewish, you don't take money for learning Torah, and you don't take money for, for being Orthodox, you don't get into the problems. You don't get into the Chil Hashem issues. You don't get into the hatred issues. You don't, you know, people will respect you. It's a big problem when the Orthodox community is on the take. And it's not because there's corruption and it's not because anyone's living a particularly good life. They're living a very humble, meager life. But it still it causes huge, huge issues. We don't have that problem in America, which is why, you know, you know, to us, you know, we don't understand what they're all fighting about. When you're there, you feel it. And maybe in closing, a more unifying uh, topic I got to meet you, Rabbi Weil, for the first time at an epic, epic event, the Daf Baisroli CM on Masecha Shabbos, which I'm sure you remember very, very well. And I didn't realize that you were, you were one of the guys. You were just one of the Chavra. And uh, it was an incredible CM. It's, uh, you know, I get to listen to Sroli every day, uh, whether it's the Daf or another Daf or whatever it is. Um, talk to us a little bit about what you've gotten out of the Lakewood Daf Yomi movement. So I have the blessing, you know, in my life, you know, I've done a few things that maybe made a difference. 
and one of them was creating all DAF. And it was a project we worked on for three years. One incredibly righteous, righteous man, you know, really put his, his support behind it. And we created a team and we built something that we thought really could make not just for those of us who learn Dafyomi, but for those fathers and sons, but somebody learning for a yard site or Rebbeim who wanted to teach the kids and have great educational tools. And I got to become very friendly with Srila. He's an, he's an incredible, incredible Balamazbear. His ability to articulate, to present, to lay out material in a clear way, it's just a treasure. He's an incredible treasure. So in the previous cycle, I listened to Rabbi Elephant and Rabbi Rosner on each stop. This cycle, I listened to Rabbi Elephant, Rabbi Rosner, and to Rabbi Bornstein, the, the three of them. You know, I do other things on the DAF. There's an incredible resource on all DAF, Rabbi Moshe Schwerd. So, so I actually watch his shear three times a week. He only gives it three times a week. But his Mikoros on the DAF, his ability to, to, to underline and to point out the key line in each Rishon and each Akron and to lay out the key topics, he's an incredible treasure to the Jewish people as well. So I have those four resources that I use and it enables me, instead of it just, you know, skimming through a piece of material, it enables me to dive in and to listen to people who are wiser, who are brighter, who are more articulate maybe than I am, how they are tackling the same material that I'm tackling. In the case of those four great resources, it just makes for, it just the, the, the Gemara becomes three-dimensional. It comes alive. You know, Abai and Rava, are, literally, I feel like I'm sitting at their feet. And uh, it's because of these resources. Amazing. Amazing. Well, Rabbi Wild, this has been a real treat. Get to discuss so many different topics. And you got to take us on a journey hundreds of years back. So we appreciate all the wisdom that you were able to provide for us. Um, we, could, we wish you only bracha and hatzlacha um, with all your amazing work locally and nationally until the coming of Mashiach. I have to thank you for the opportunity first of all. And again, it's one man's opinion. Not, a, not, not, you don't have to, no one has to agree in terms of those who are watching or listening to this. You know, I, Rabbi Kapenstein asked me to be open, you know, and try to share some open thoughts. So whether they're right, wrong, or indifferent, I, I let you be the judge of them. That's what we do. Many voices. Everyone gets to be a judge. Thank you. To listen to all Colote episodes and see upcoming guests, visit kolopodcast.com. We are also on all podcast players. Type in Kolot on iTunes, Spotify, Google, Stitcher, Podbean, and Amazon. Share with your friends and please make sure to give us a five-star review. Kolot is a project of the Columbus Community Kolel, a full-time Jewish learning center in Bexley, staffed with high-caliber Torah scholars. Ever since 1995, boys, girls, men and women from all backgrounds and affiliations have found many opportunities to connect with Torah and mitzvahs at the Kolel. Whether it's a study partner, engaging lesson, or a program, the Kolel is your one-stop shop for all your Jewish learning. If you want to know how you can benefit from the Kolel, visit thekolel.org. That is T-H-E-K-O-L-L-E-L dot org and forever be inspired.